0: Are you looking to simplify your investments? Check out BMO ETFs. Your asset allocation can have a major impact on whether you will meet your financial goals. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to asset allocation ETFs to complement their portfolios. BMO offers easy to use solutions such as the BMO Growth ETF, BMO Balance ETF, BMO All Equity ETF, and more. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically. What was once a popular mutual fund strategy is now available through an ETF with the introduction of the T6 units. T6 units provide a 6% annual payout on a monthly basis, helping retirees meet their cash flow needs. This is available on their balanced and growth asset allocation ETFs. Regular rebalancing means you can spend less time planning your life and more time living it. Learn more at BMOETFs.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The
1: dirty secret is that no one's ever
0: yeah, hey, I have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just gotta get
1: Keith into
0: Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour episode 87. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Keith, it's uh What's going on, buddy? How's
2: the forest fires over there? It looks, looks kind of clear behind you. Yeah, we're, uh, we're now out of the woods. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know. But we, we have huge excitement in our neighborhood, guys. So our neighbors are going away for a few days. And they ask us, you know, hey, keep an eye on the house, everything. And I'm thinking, this is easy. I like that. All of a sudden, uh, yesterday, the, um, the university-age son comes back from school. And he's, you know, a lot older and at that age. Anyway, uh today the this delivery truck shows up with three kegs being delivered. And oh. I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm thinking tonight I'm Frank the Tank. This What's is going the to address? Be a fun... <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, what kids do when the parents go away. Yeah, Frank the Tank. That's I could see that. Yeah, yeah. That's a Rich. great that's an underrated movie.
1: I was a model child, and I never did, did any drugs or alcohol um, until I was of age. And <laughs> my mother, who listens to this podcast, will be—you um, got a lot laugh. of pent-up demand. Eh? I was—I was. A, I was a, let's just say I wasn't necessarily the best best high school student, but I made up for it at uni. And no, there's nothing going on here, man. I'm 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 good, happy. This it's beautiful in London. Went for a bike ride, um, went for a boat ride. If you ever get to London, actually, you know, you should do. There's something called the the Thames Clipper. And for a very minimal price, I think it's like five pounds. You can take the boat. It's actually called an Uber boat, not to give them a free plug, but um, basically a boat all the way from West London Um, If anyone knows, it's Westminster, where the House of Parliament is, all the way to uh, Greenwich, which is a beautiful part of the world. And you can do it for five bucks. There's my free travel tip for the week. Boys, there's lots to talk about. So let's get into it.
0: There you go. Um, Yeah, I mean, huge week. Obviously, Uh, we got the Bank of Canada, you know, shocking markets, certainly shocking the loony hour. Uh, So we'll get into that after our uh, special guest today. We do have a special guest, uh, Robert Asselin. Um, I, hope, I hope I said that correctly, but he was the uh, former economic and policy advisor to former finance minister, Bill Morneau. Um, so we're very privileged to have him on. We're going to ask him some questions and get to the bottom of this, because I think it's a it's a pretty important time, right? I mean, we've got, um, you know, there's obviously huge deficit spending going on at a time when the Bank of Canada is trying to work in the opposite direction uh by taming inflation so i think we're going to be looks like we're going to be suffering through higher for longer interest rates and what does that mean for a highly levered economy uh you know robert's going to certainly chime in and provide some of his input uh which is interesting to have somebody that was you know boots on the ground in in government and as we said before this show does not discriminate you know left right blue red green doesn't matter your shirt color uh you know we'd love to have you on the show and and you know hear your opinion so
2: Keith? I thought oh, we we're, were waiting, waiting for, a, for Robert. No yeah, me too.
0: Me,
2: huh? <laughs> I don't have anything clever to say. I do later, but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, me we'll too. get into that. But yeah, but you know, obviously today we got the, we'll got we talk about the Bank of Canada afterwards. Um, I'm feeling kind of peckish, so I'm looking forward to my, my snack <laughs> I have coming up. Uh, no, but the one teaser. No lemon loaf.
0: Yeah, I don't have That's a lemon right. loaf.
2: I have a, I have a Twinkie. Here, here she is. Here she is. And, uh, but I think the great thing about yesterday's announcement for the first time, I think, in the history of the global financial system, a Canadian policy decision actually shifted global markets. Like it it was a pretty seismic event yesterday, and uh, it just increased investors views now that hey the fed is now going to hike again like everything just got turned upside down yesterday the the bond market got like absolutely mullered yesterday and, and stuff like that so uh yeah it it'll, it'll be fun it'll be fun to, to dive further into it rich did you find a twinkie in like the land of no twinkies so let me tell you, I worked hard for the Looney Hour. <laughs> I went to no
1: less than four stores um, on Oxford Circus. Which, if you've ever been to London, Oxford Circus is brutal at best of times, and on a hot summer day with all the freaking tourists that walk slower than a tortoise, um, I went to four or five, four or five different stores. I finally found a passable uh substitute so i did not find a twinkie but i found something uh just as horrible it's from hostess it's a ho-ho <laughs> i didn't even know that was a thing Ho so a ho-ho so uh it's made it's 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 terrible and terrible for you uh but i will eat it because like you know Keith said we got it wrong or a little peckish so yeah. there you if go. you if you want to okay, enjoy I'm that bad.
0: you got to stick around for post interview uh but let's jump over to the interview right now with robert Haslin. Robert, welcome to the show. Um, Sorry, I think I actually made a mistake earlier. So you were just uh, you were the policy and budget director to Finance Minister Morneau. Uh, You wrote a great piece of paper with uh, former Bank of Canada Governor David Dodge, which we all read prior to this recording, uh, sort of detailing the federal government's sort of fiscal plan and and so, yeah, I would love sort of, you know, I don't know if you have any more to chime in on your background and, and um, your experience it would be great for the audience that uh, maybe isn't familiar with you.
3: So first, thanks for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure. I think your your podcast is awesome. Uh, so yes, I was the policy budget director to finance minister Morneau for the first two years of the Trudeau government. Uh, so I left uh, government in November 2017. And by then, the economy was doing pretty well. Uh, And uh, we were, uh, at that time, on the fiscal side, pretty close to if we wanted to come back to balance over the forecast horizon. And then, uh, obviously, the government took uh, another direction, which was more spending. And here we are.
0: This is, uh, you teed it out pretty well.
2: So I have to ask. It, it's before. it sounds like though you you know you went it was nice and nice and mm-hmm. here we are. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. a, a few things happened between the nice days and and here we are. But I, I know uh, you know, Rich, you're just itching to uh, ask. A no, question. I was, I'm biting <laughs> my
1: tongue because I'm trying to get. not I don't want to get myself into trouble or Mister Aslant into trouble. So you guys carry on. I got
0: questions later. Well, just a question on that. I mean, um, you know, you obviously worked closely alongside Bill Morneau. Was was. I know he's no longer there in, in that position. Um, you can debate his departing and, and why it happened, but w- was, was his was his goal and objective to get closer to sort of that balanced budget? And there was sort of a disagreement on on, on the path forward.
3: Yes, I think th- these things are uh, public now. He's written a book about it. He's been very clear about what was his core objectives as finance minister. One was growth through productivity, and second was uh you know reasonable fiscal track i think the context in uh, 15 when he came into power was demand was subdued uh we did target some investments in infrastructure uh, the child benefits for the middle class i think were helpful generally speaking uh and it was measured i would say it was not over the top um and i think he felt that uh obviously over time uh the disagreement on the fiscal track became uh more important and the pandemic happened everybody agreed at the beginning of the pandemic that uh, spending was necessary to support uh, folks but i think the latter part of the pandemic where it was clearer that the economy was doing a bit better than we originally thought i think it's where Things got a bit more heated with uh, him and uh, the prime minister, and we are we are where we are today.
0: What what's it's, your yeah. yeah, Rich? Go ahead.
1: Well, I just want to say I mean, I first of all, I really like the paper. Um, this, I just want to give you a couple of props because I think when people such as yourself uh, write these policy papers, they often are not given anywhere near enough credit. So I think you guys nailed the inflation being sticky. And I think at the time when you guys wrote the paper, that was not a consensus view at all. I know right. this because I had the same view and I was derided for that view. Um, you guys nailed sort of laid out the same similar reasons we've talked about it. So I'm not going to belabor that point, but I definitely want to give you your props. Um, the, you know, you, you mentioned at the con- one of the conclusions is that there's a significant risk that both the debt ratio and the interest cost ratios exceed yes. comfortable levels. Uh, not to rehash the whole paper that you did, but given that this paper was written several months or quarters ago, can yes. you give, give us a quick sort of update without any uh, forecasts or
3: PowerPoint? Great great, Richard. A great question, Richard. I think, if anything, uh, what is happening, I would say, in the last few weeks has comforted us in our stress test scenarios. And this is what this paper was about was to say, okay, what happens if one, interest rates stay higher for longer? Second, if per capita spending keeps going up, and this has been the tendency of this government. And third, uh, if on the supply side, things get uh, you know, more tricky going forward. In, the, in other words, uh, because of as a result of interest rates staying higher, kind of the economy being compressed to reduce inflation over time, and when you run these numbers, as you said, uh, you get to uh, levels that are less comfortable on, on, on fiscal anchors, both on debt servicing costs, but also on debt to GDP ratio that, as opposed to going down, stay up, as we've seen with the last budget. By the way, they, they went after their, they um, basically didn't respect their own fiscal anchor what, which was declining debt to GDP ratio so to me, that, that kind of says where we are today. Um, it, it is possible that, I guess for some, that things will still be okay in a few months, uh, years from now. I still think uh, a, a big uh, a big risk uh, on interest rates staying uh, higher for longer and also on per capita spending staying higher than they were projected in, in these budgets. And as a result, if you look at going where we are going forward i think there are huge trends that will make the government bigger in the economy and I, I just very uh you know summarizing what i mean by that uh the debt is larger so to finance this debt will cost more to the government both as a function of interest rates being higher but also at, at the size of the debt second is uh Aging demographics will put an onus on, on government spending more money to take care of uh, these people uh, being a- aging uh, rapidly. Third, I would say the relative price of what the government is buying, education, health care is going up. It's not going down. And lastly, um, if you look at things that are very expensive like defense, I'd be surprised that a few years from now we won't be uh in a position where we spend less in other words it's quite evident that we will spend more on these things and i think that's the right thing to do by the way so all these things considered i think the track we are laying down is one that is maybe more realistic than the government one
0: secure your digital life did you know anytime you surf the internet your data is exposed to data brokers these companies collect your personal information and sell them to businesses for marketing purposes data brokers collect your personal information and profit off of it at expense of your privacy let Incogni help you take back control of your data, produce spam, and prevent scam attacks by opting you out of their databases automatically. Incogni doesn't only remove your data from certain kinds of data brokers, risk mitigation, recruitment, people search sites, financial information, and marketing data brokers. Incogni removes your personal information from them all. Looney Hour listeners get an exclusive 60% discount by visiting incogni.com/slash hour. And now back to the show.
2: So what, what I really, uh, by the way, I, I thought the paper was, I don't think I would ever say this for the papers, but it, it was thrilling. I, I just <laughs> love the way it was laid out. And so f- for people who haven't read it, we do encourage you to go to read it, but basically, you know, without going through everything, but the basic premise is that it, some of these are my words, of course, and, you know, making it sound better than it. No, I'm just joking. But, um... Most of these long-term projections and, and models that are used by, by governments all over the world doesn't matter where they are, uh, they're always they want to present them in the most optimistic like possible because you know in the game is everybody is selling something in the world, including on, on the government side, so they have to do that. And then what what so what what Robert's paper did it basically took hey what if these four different factors change over time, and obviously the inflation outlook um and what happened with with interest rates of course and, and growth and what was the what's the fourth one i don't remember right now
3: inflation uh, growth and supply the size of the economy Sup- essentially
2: yes yeah. a- a- absolutely and then and, and i'm reading this i'm thinking okay, yeah but the, the big bang what comes up with this one who appreciate you, you can't have one of those factors happening in isolation without right. affecting the other one so of course you know the fifth factor which you go into great detail with uh, you're demonstrating hey if if one of these happens it's going to affect everything and i think in one of your estimates, you have a i think minus 0.9% yeah. for a, a, a you know a, i forget which calendar year it is for a, a recession coming up 2023 yeah it's to 23 okay yeah so we're you know maybe that'll be adjusted as pushed or I guess pushed forward a little bit as as we go into it and when 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 we're reading this ourselves as an investment manager we like to use the phrase that you know global Risk has been synchronized around the world, and I think if any of these events happens, if it isn't Canada or Europe or the Americans experience it, it's our expectation that that minus point nine can be amplified even further. You know, the inflation number yeah. can be even more. And then, and then the last part that I really that I love the most in the paper is really the uh, the interest expense and what that how that's going to move. And you you had a line in what effectively says people may not realize that if if you have to pay more in interest on your debt it means you actually have to borrow more to pay that interest on the debt or has to come from higher taxes so my question then like going through all this in the paper is there guys like us are reading it and talking about it how much weight is put on this is it discussed at different levels of government at will the big banks discuss it why don't you share that background
3: with with I mean, our first, uh, first of all, I, I should give uh, credit where it is due. Uh, doing this with David Dodge was an immense privilege. He's been uh, at the forefront of this in the '90s when we had a deficit and public finance crisis. Uh, so, I, I from my perspective, he's one of the most credible economists on this issue. And uh, Richard Dion works with him, ran the numbers, did the modeling. So they deserve a you know, a huge amount of uh, credit for this paper. I I, I guess uh, it was widely discussed. I know we had an impact in government. I know it was discussed, uh, especially because David uh, was the Deputy Minister of Finance in the 90s. And I think a lot of people respect uh, his opinion uh, and the fact that I was an advisor to the Finance Minister. I, I hope helped you, Um uh, But th- this is a broader discussion on, for the corporate world, what it means to have higher debt servicing. And what it means, as you said, is at the end of the day, we're gonna need more revenues. And that's the worrisome part is that at some point, you'll need to increase taxes on either income or capital gains or corporate uh, taxes. And none of these options are good because as you know, we are highly taxed uh, country compared to others and this is why this debate is so important now you want to get ahead of it because when it is too late and someone says well guess what we have to do another gst move uh, then it's really not good for the economy you know
0: there's something to be said there with immigration as well kind of coming in and papering over you know i know like there certainly seems to be more more of a balanced discussion today around the levels of immigration just because I think it's putting immense pressure not only on housing but on, on public infrastructure?
3: I think the I would say we have three simultaneous crises and I think they are crises on the economic front. The one is the inflation one. We're not the only country that is going through but it is a, a crisis in a sense that it won't be brought down easily to 2%. The second is a productivity crisis that has been Happening for some decades, but it's now pretty acute, and it does as uh, it does have a huge effect on real wages. We're not talking about an abstract thing; it's real wages for Canadians are significantly lower than Americans uh, on average. And and the third is housing. Housing is a huge crisis right now, and unfortunately, it does as an effect on our immigration policy, which generally. I've been very supportive of, uh, especially economic immigrants, but because we have this acute crisis of uh, productivity and housing, I think because we bring so many people at this time, it does have a negative effect, unfortunately, on these factors, on these crises, And I just need, uh, we just need to be conscious of it. So maybe we do need to adjust a bit in the short term, the numbers, and I, I'm not advocating for less immigration. To the contrary, I think I'm I'm, I'm I have a very liberal, a small L liberal uh, position on this. Uh, but uh, you know, when you look at the number, you have to realize that uh, it is putting huge pressure on both housing and GDP per capita.
1: So can I just um, touch on that? So uh, the inflation bit, we sort of agree, and I, I will skip that for now, I think. But, and I'm really, really happy that you mentioned the productivity bit, because something that's something I've, I've gone on and on about. I mean, real, I think uh, real, um, sorry, spending on research and development as a percentage of GDP is at a 20 year low. It has not gone up in real terms in 25 years. Um, I'm of the view that unless you really inc- increase that number, you you do not have imp- improved productivity. Um, and so maybe that we can move on that um, on the housing. I mean, do you see, sorry? And then sorry on the housing thing, do you think do you see any sort of relief coming through um, as a function of the programs that have been outlined? Because we you know, when we watch question period or answer period or whatever that they call that. We're constantly being told that there's these programs that are being initiated, that there's lots of money being spent. But yet housing starts are soft and weak. Um, You know, contractors get our our margins are getting squeezed and there's not enough. And there's labor shortages. I don't care what anybody says. I believe that there's labor shortages, acute labor shortages in specific industries required to alleviate that housing. Do you think the spending programs, not, not to be overly critical on the current government, but do you think the yeah. spending programs and that stuff will move to, to alleviate some of
3: that or not at all? Or I think you've been leaders on this, guys. I've listened to the interventions you've made. You, you're probably more experts than I am on this. But my view is uh, so far we haven't seen that it has moved the needle. Uh, I'm very skeptical of a federal government coming in with a bunch of money in a budget say we're going to solve this. Uh, historically, it, it's not uh, how it has been done. Uh, you know, federalism is usually a strength for Canada, but for these things, it makes things more complicated and slower. The permitting, the permitting side, in my uh, perspective, is a huge problem, uh, and which uh, is not threatened enough, I find, to move the needle on this culturally. Uh, this is true for housing. This is true for business investment problem, innovation problem that I've written a lot about. We think we do industrial policy, but in my view, we do it very badly uh, because historically we haven't had to do it well, to be honest. We've been uh, privileged by our geography and our natural resources. So um, the short answer on housing is I don't have a lot of hope, to be honest. I look at the numbers uh and they seem to be, uh, and I have to give credit to Mike Moffitt on this, he's been leading the charge, uh, but the, the numbers, I think, are quite telling. And the gap is just growing on supply and demand, you know.
0: Well, just to kind of get to that point, because, you know, your your paper, you know, you, you succinctly say that, okay, inflation is going to be probably potentially higher for longer. Uh, you know, the deficit sort of spending is obviously, you know, um, counterproductive to what the bank of canada is trying to do and so i can tell you what's happening on the housing front which is okay so the economy is proving to be a bit more resilient than we expected inflation is being a bit more stubborn so interest rates are higher for longer and what we're seeing now is a lot of these new development these housing supply projects are actually no longer feasible uh because the cost of capital has become so expensive that these these projects no longer pencil so what we're actually seeing we're actually seeing a lot of these projects are are dropping like flies, and 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 they're not going to be built. And so, I actually think that's creating that won't yeah. create necessarily a supply problem today. But you talk three, four years down the road, as obviously all levels of government are trying to encourage the private sector to build more, it's actually it's actually turning off right now.
3: Yeah, no, I can see that
2: absolutely. I, I have another uh, question as well. Um, when when these conversations and and, and planning. Uh, is taking place uh in in Ottawa so at the public sector side are there any discussions about other economies other countries and maybe like external events that you know they have a a non-zero event probability of maybe occurring that could affect what happens here in Canada is that discussed and if it is like at what level and extent give it give us an example if you I could
3: speak, I, I can speak from my experience at the Department of Finance uh, at the federal level. I can say the analysis provided is top-notch. They are totally on top of it. They have the data, they have uh, the forecast, they speak to the right people. Um, the modeling is is pretty good as far as models can go. Um, so I, I don't think the problem is in the analysis. And, and this has been uh, talked about for a long time, certainly when I was there, and it wasn't as acute as it is today. So I think people saw this coming. The issue is really on how do you confront this as a country, given the federal, provincial, municipal. Uh, so yes, you know the comparative aspect to other countries might be helpful, but some countries, because they have um, less levels of governments, they can move more quickly on this stuff. Uh, So Canada, it makes it always more challenging. You know, I go back to the federalism uh, kind of obstacle in, in these instances where I find you need to talk to a lot of provinces. It takes time. They don't agree. It's not the same in every city. And so this is why I think as a country, to be honest, if I look at the last five years, we haven't moved as fast as we should have on many things, including housing, Because historically, we've not been good at moving fast. Uh, And I think culturally, that's become a big disadvantage for Canada.
1: Can I ask another question? So, I mean, the way you've sort of highlighted something, and not to put words in your mouth, but there's like sort of a fight between sort of the pragmatists and the technocrats, who I agree with you are top-notch. I mean, your CV, frankly, not to make you blush is is quite impressive. And then sort of the idealists, and I understand that this conflict is not unique to one side or the other. Um, but would you say that this government suffers from, you know, policy that's dictated and dominated by dogma rather than one that's, you know, let's just say has a kinship with reality? I it's mean, very- and I and I would use energy as my personal bugbear, yeah. but please, please
3: carry on. It's a very astute observation. Certainly, um, uh- Liberal governments in the past have been very pragmatic. That's 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 been my experience. This government has been more ideological than others, in my opinion. And this is not in any disrespect to the people who have served, who are serving in this government. I think their art is at the right place. But I do think they have an ideological bent that government has to step up on every public policy problem with big dollars and somehow it will solve it which I don't think is a pragmatic view of how it works uh, in practice. And so uh, I would say that on the implementation side, there have been a lot of shortcomings. It's okay to say we're going to come in with this national housing strategy. It's another thing to actually implement it. And if you look at a lot of the things they've been announcing in the last three budgets, and I go back to the budget, uh, the first uh, budget of Minister Freeland in 2021 when they came with this $140 billion stimulus budget, you will recall, which I think was absolutely unnecessary and has proven to be very inflationary uh, because the economy was doing uh, very, very well at that point. Uh, you have a ton of measures in these budgets that, in my view, are well-intended that are uh, of course uh, meant to do well but that in practice if you look back three years after you would struggle I find to find uh, impressive outcomes for any of these things that have been announced and and I would actually say go further and say that in a lot of instances they have not been implemented yet so that tells you a bit about sometimes our government can get trapped uh, over its own kind of goodwill
0: Robert, do you still have uh, your friends kind of higher up in the, in the party there and are in government right now?
3: I do. I have a lot of respect for uh, uh, many friendships with ministers and, and people who serve in the government and work really, really hard. Uh, you know, I, I try to voice my disagreement the most respectful way I can on, on, on policy ideas, not on personal intent. I don't accuse anyone of bad faith. And I think as long as it stays that way, I, I hope it is helpful. You know, what's what's
0: what's the current sentiment? You know, amongst your 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 peers there.
3: My sense is, uh, to be perfectly honest, there's a sense of of a certain fatigue that is uh, normal when you've been in government for a year, especially after the crisis they've been under uh, to uh, come to their defense a bit. The Trump presidency, then the COVID crisis, were. Not small <laughs> in terms of scope and scale of crises for any governments who have uh who would have been there, I think would have been huge challenges, so you have these people who have been through these crises that have been in office for eight years now almost uh you can feel some some sometimes they are a bit stretched uh a bit tired, which is totally normal uh and there hasn't been a lot of renewal around. Uh, in my view, around the Prime Minister and key offices. Uh, and then there's a natural tendency that happens in government is that once you come in, you have a clear plan. Uh, I'm proud to say I participated in a 2015 platform. I thought it was pretty comprehensive, centrist platform, um, reasonable platform, I would say. Uh, but as it happens uh, over time, government gets maybe less inclined to move with new ideas. And uh, you can kind of feel it to the governance. They react more than they uh, initiate, I would say. And when they initiate, sometimes uh, it's done a bit on the back of a napkin uh, and not well cut out. And this is not just for this government. I think this is a universal commons for governments who have been in office for a long time.
2: I have another unrelated question for you. I think it might be the last one maybe. Um, what, what are the the discussions around the possibility of a sovereign debt bubble and or a private sector right. or, or credit bubble? because right right now today of course, you know one, one interesting shift that's taking place in the marketplace. Pension funds everywhere are now shifting to the you know the next biggest greatest thing which is private credit. Yeah, and the only thing that's great about private credit is that there's no mark-to-market, so they don't have to mark on, on their books on, on yeah. a regular basis. But like within of the, the public sector? Like, is there a conversation that says, like, my God, if if the ten-year goes from three to five yeah. percent for eighteen months, we're screwed? Or I know. I mean, like one of the headline quotes we always see now coming up, Ottawa is is two things. One, it is comparing uh you know Canada's debt to GDP level the previous periods and also on a G7 basis and stuff and it which is makes me cringe of course me but too. there's no mention yeah but there's no absolutely and there's no mention though of household debt because every almost every single metric for households at the Canadian level like, it's it's not only shocking like it, it yeah. should scare the bejesus out of everyone yeah. So we could be in a situation where, hey, you know, public, you know, public data points look fine, like we can get through them, right. but if if something breaks on the household level, then all of a sudden we're back to another like you know 2020 kind of bailout taking place yeah. you know, towards the private sector again. So share a little bit of, about that, maybe.
3: The question is really good. Uh, I tr- I try to look at that uh, overall. Uh, I'm a, from a very basic point of view, which is supply and demand. And when I look at it today, uh, the supply side is pretty big, which makes me worry. At one point, at uh, any given point, you have to have enough people to want to buy your your debt, whether it is uh, corporate, private, public. And given interest rates, I think real interest rates will get higher uh, as a result of the debt out there. I think, it will be a natural uh, phenomena that you know, interest rates uh, on debt in general will be higher and that will create a, a huge pressure. So I, sh- I totally share your, um, uh, I guess your concerns. And I think uh, the aggregate amount of debt out there is becoming to be a bit scary uh, and it could cause a lot of problem in the economy. So um, because we have become a service consumption-based economy, not enough productive, that puts an, an additional onus, I would say, on Canada that a lot of other countries don't have. Uh, and again, going back to this housing crisis, I, I think this is something I'm uh, personally quite worried about.
0: That's uh yeah, Robert. Really appreciate you know taking your time. I just had one last question here, um, and I don't know if you can comment on it or not. But I know you're with, uh, you know, uh, more there until November 17, roughly. Um, any any comments around? Uh, you know, I'm on the housing front here, a Home Capital Group,
3: and the deal that was struck with Warren Buffett there. I don't have a comment on that. I don't feel I'm in a good position to to comment, to be honest. I had to ask it, so I, I, he's, he's been such
1: a he's been such a lovely guest, and you're trying to get him in trouble <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. i I was against that question by the way. I don't
0: <laughs>
2: good, good sorry I, 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 I was I was saving that one
0: up, but we'll uh, we'll we'll leave it at that it I, remains, I think a remains better
2: question good. is do you have a variable rate mortgage or are you on fixed?
3: <laughs> that's that's probably the better one yeah i'm on, I'm, on, I'm on fixed, but uh, worried about the, uh, you know renegotiating in a year from now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that'll be uh. well, you're smarter than most
0: fixing in there. So, <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, Robert, thanks again for, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. We'll, we'll link to your report. Uh, so the rest of our audience here can, uh, can take a peek as well.
3: Thank you so much, guys. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Au revoir.
0: Yeah, that was an awesome interview. I was, uh, I think I was smiling the whole time. Just, uh, <laughs> Just
2: listen to this guy. So uh, I was I think, Yeah. I don't think Rich has any hope of getting hired by the government down the road. The no, mystery. maybe the, the mystery maybe.
0: around we'll Warren see.
2: Buffett uh, remains to be demystified. <laughs> guys, listen, I'm feeling kind of peckish. What about you guys? Dun, dun, Me dun. too. <laughs> All right. Well, well yeah, we, we all lost. We all lost the bet. We, this uh, we is, all I'm ready. I'm
0: ready. This is <laughs> the first. This is the first time in Looney Hour history that you've had all three of us lose the bet. We're all on one side. Uh, shows you how much we know. Um, the Bank account Canada obviously raising rates, 25 basis points. Uh, so let's uh, let's get into it. 20, do we all hours. eat at the
1: same time or do one of us talk while we go? <laughs> yeah, somebody take we just want to. Keep
2: all right so on on my Twinkie, it says best before the year two thousand and eighty five this is good <laughs> this is gonna take it, uh, but let's just um, start you know while we're enjoying our snack here Rich is it a little a little Debbie what do you have? what is it no I have, have a,
1: a, ho, I have a i have it's it's a ho it's a ho-ho. Um, ho ho um well, ho what ho who? <laughs> it's a ho ho, which is not <laughs> reflective of my social life uh anyways uh it's a it's product from hostess so it counts it counts see the box
2: let's see the the box box
1: looks exactly the same to be fair there you go there you
2: go so right now steve is you know here we have the king of Kitslano, pretty the only guy there in the neighborhood enjoying a twinkie but let's get down to i gotta get a box of ho-hos for the holiday season (laughs) coming up next year (laughs) okay rich rich is going man you're chowing down on that rich (laughs) Uh, Steve, why don't you run through then what what happened with with the Bank of Canada announcement, and then we'll we'll go from there with market reaction, and you know where do we go from here? Because it was a pretty, um, you know, you know, it, it's one thing. that like we, you know, we, we were all uh, we we all predicted or forecast that there would not be a rate hike. I thought there would be either like a a dovish hike, you know, they would hike and then not say too much, or there'd be no hike, but be very hawkish, you know, with with their language. Of course, there was no presser yesterday. They they just had the, uh, in the report come out. And just for everyone realizes that it was a complete shocker. And the reason you know that, because it just, it, it completely moved, Almost all markets around the world, you get this uh, sort of snowball effect or bootstrapping, right, Rich, from your CFA days?
1: Well, it it wasn't it wasn't priced in. So you remember, we always talk about things like OIS spreads and forward OIS and and bankers acceptance notes and uh, what they
0: do. Are you sure? All of all of Twitter seemed to know that they were hiking rates. Uh well, not the people who counted,
1: not to be a total jerk about it, but the expectations on the Bloombergs and all that stuff. It, it, it was not it was non-zero, it just wasn't sometimes it's 95% chance, right? The probability, anyways. Let's not get No, no, I mean let's let's, Sorry, let's be honest. Keith. Like,
0: let's, yeah, let's call it what it is. The bond market was not expecting it. There was a right, very exactly. low probability. There's obviously larger, there was a larger probability that if the bank had a move, it was probably going to be in July. They're maybe gonna give us a bit of a preview here in June and say, okay. And then you can kind of forecast out, but, you know, he, he didn't, uh, yeah, he didn't wait this time, which, uh, yeah, w- was definitely surprising, um, 25 basis point move. The, I mean, I look the, the the mark that I watch basically is the Canada five-year bond yield, because that's pricing your five-year fixed mortgage rate, which is what most Canadians care about. Um, that moved up about 20 basis points on the day, like instantly, as soon as the market, uh, as soon as so the, that's the one deal- hike. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and like, I can tell you like leading up prior to the announcement, I I had conversations with pretty much, you know, three of the five large banks, all of them had, uh, all of them were increasing their, their fixed rate mortgages prior to the meeting. They were all moving up by about 20 basis points. Um, So who knows? Maybe they knew something, but uh, no, but like seriously, so all your fixed rate mortgages were already moving up. So I think we're going to see another repricing potentially after this move, given where yields have gone. So um, we're getting close to, we're getting close, not quite. We're getting close to the highs of about the fall of last year when mortgage rates like your five year fix would have been like five and a half. We're getting very, very close to that number right now and and we might just get there in the next couple of weeks if this
2: continues. So what's interesting, so so right now the market is pricing one more hike. So another 25 points coming up and it could be as soon as uh, July 12th coming up. Um, But this is what I would have done. And not that it it matters, of course, (laughs) but it matters to me. Um, So if we're sitting there and... And what I mean by that, if, if you're on the committee at the Bank of Canada and the Board of Governors, you're sitting down, you're going through everything, and, and it's in agreement that, you know what, we're still a little bit behind the ball here. So we have to do something. And the policy response in that situation, it it, it should have been a 50. So I think they could have done a 50.1, just because com- if you're going to shock the market, just shock the market, because it's they need a recession. Again, I keep saying that all the time. But the only way they're going to really control inflation is to crush demand. And the way you crush demand is by having a recession, which means job losses or no bonuses and and stuff like that. The cost of financing is more expensive. So by doing another 25 again, you know, it's they want to have, you know, their Twinkie and eat it too, right? Do you think one of the, Do you think one of the sole purposes <laughs> That's what we're of, doing though. We're doing
0: the same <laughs> thing. Do you think one of the sole purposes of the hike was merely just to try to shock markets to get them out of this sort of? I mean, I mean, I, 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 I think personally, looking at the housing market, I, and I've said this before, it, it has not been a demand boom. The like we've seen prices going up across all these markets, but over the last five months, it has not been a demand side boom. It has been a supply-driven issue that has pushed prices up. But clearly, I think people are a bit, have been a bit lulled to sleep, which is, oh, the Bank of Canada moved to the sidelines. They're on pause. This is probably as bad as it's going to get. And they've been willing to sort of re-engage in bidding wars and push prices higher. And so perhaps uh, you know, he's trying to sort of shock that, that, that mindset or that culture that we've created over 30 years.
1: I, I think that that's a I think that's a, a good a good point. I mean, I would like to give us some props because a couple a couple of things that we've talked about consistently, which is sticky services, um, population growth, and housing. So the reason why I'm saying that is because if you look at the actual press uh, the press release or whatever, you can see the th- um, it's free freely available. Um, you know, he talks about that in the third paragraph. They talk about you know, uh, strong demand for labor. Overall, excess demand for the economy looks more persistent than anticipated. And why is that true? And one of the things we've been harping on over and over again is when you have population growth of such excess, it's very, very, very difficult, right? We have two, um, you know, forces pushing in the opposite direction. And and I think that it's really interesting that they they cite that as well as t- they talk about you know the stickiness in services, which is again something we've talked about. Not to belabor the point, and and my my sneaking suspicion is that Tiff Macklin is an avid listener of the lo- Looney Hour, but that has yes to be yeah that has yet to be confirmed. But the other thing was that that immigration and labor component um, sort of speaks to the fact that it was going to be really really tricky to c- push down inflation, and so unless you have some of those you know like. Keith says, unless you have demand come down and demand can come down from different perspectives. it can come down from job losses, but it can also come down from lower immigration, or, you know, let's say a credit contraction and what have you. And I think it's it's just interesting that they highlighted a bunch of those issues. They also talk about how the fact that, you know, a lot of the reason that um, inflation fell in the first place is because of lower energy costs. Well, guess what's stopped? I mean, the year on year change in energy costs has gone to zero and will probably stay there. So. It's interesting how it's it sort of it's touching on a lot of the stuff that we've touched on. We just got the date wrong.
0: <laughs> well, just to chime in on, like, this is why we're so excited to have uh, Robert on the show today, which was like, you know, like the same day that the Bank of Canada raised rates, which is there, again, they're trying to sort of kill the man, as Keith said, get that recession so you can get inflation down. Uh, yeah, you had uh, finance minister Christopher Freeland out, uh, and I quote, she says, we are coming to the end of this difficult path out of the COVID economy. The destination is stable, low inflation, and steady, strong growth. And that is the direction that we're heading. Uh, and as of right now, for those that aren't paying attention, they are seeking approval in Parliament uh, to push another $20 billion of deficit spending. So I, I don't understand it, to, to be honest. It, it, it's just like, if I'm Tiff Macklem, it's just like, dude, what are you doing? it's like, <laughs>
2: Well, here's stuff. so here. You know, so Rich made a good comment, you know, that, you know, the Bank of Canada, they're, they're listening to the Looney Hour. So here's how the conversation would have went. You know, they, they get together and say, Hey, uh, what'd you do last night? Oh, yeah, I was, I was watching the Looney Hour. He said, Yeah, did you hear Suresky call the bottom in the housing market a couple of months ago? <laughs> five and months ago. <laughs> five months ago. And he said, Yeah, we'll just wait till this afternoon. We'll show him. Right. That's yeah. what would have, the way it went down. Okay. So that's it, guys. I mean, the Bank of Canada. But the other thing, remember, I'm always try to bring everything to a focus that's not just Canadian-centric, but the same day, uh, the Royal Bank of Australia, the RBA, Australia- Day before, Central. I think. Day before? Yeah. Well, the day before in Australia is tomorrow here. Okay. <laughs> that's way too confusing. <laughs> that's like a Simpsons episode, I think. Yeah, that is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. However, they raised rates again. That's a bit of a shock. Now, the Canadians did it. And now all of a sudden um there's momentum building that the Fed will raise rates again. I you know, I, I think the Fed was going to raise anyway next week. Uh we also have the American CPI data coming out next week as well. So you know, next week will be some fireworks in uh, in a monetary, you know, fixed income world, Rich. And and, and don't forget that the non farm payrolls
1: came out better than expected last Friday. Uh, which was also a shock. So, it, and, and the previous months got released. So, and so you have solid labor market. I mean, again, not totally solid, but you know what I'm saying? That specific number was great. Um, and, and so we have the RBA, BOC, and then this is sort of a setup for the fed. And as you always tell us, Keith, uh, all the central banks sort of talk, they're on a giant WhatsApp group and they, and they probably talk to each other. So I feel like the BOC probably knew something was coming down the pike before, before any of us did maybe.
2: Uh, yeah, maybe. And, um, anyway, I mean, yeah, so that's now where we're headed. So we're down, you know, we're headed down this you know, journey, not Aerosmith, where, you know, a higher interest rate or tighter interest rate policy, it, it hasn't ended yet. Now, as a reminder that like the Americans have yet to pause, like they're still continuing down that path. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because everyone you know, in central bank world, everyone wants to be Volcker, you know, they all will be Paul Volcker until the time comes to be Paul Volcker. So we'll we'll see what the Americans do he- next week. But she was, yeah. Yes. No, I'm
0: curious your thoughts because, like, you know, we've talked about on the show, which is like it's incredibly unusual for a central banker to raise rates, raise rates, raise rates, pause, and then the next move again is a is a hike. Usually, once you pause, your next move is typically the cut. So we we've, we've, we've kind of gone on that. And I'm curious, like, on your your personal opinion, how are you looking at this from, like, if you were a central banker? Um, like my like my view personally and again hey this guys in real estate so you know may, maybe i've got a bit of a bias but i just look at it and say how lagging is this are these rate hikes which is like you know we've talked about on the show only one-third of canadians have actually seen a mortgage payment increase so a lot of this hasn't necessarily filtered through we're only just now starting to see it sort of filter through on uh on housing construction rich you'll Chime in about how large a sector, whether it's right or it's wrong, uh, construction is a huge component of of this Canadian GDP. So, Canada building permits dropped 18, 19% in April uh, to the lowest level since December of 2020. And I would consider building permits to be one of your sort of leading indicators. But then again, like, you know, maybe on the lagging side, you've still got like relatively strong GDP. So, it's like, is it in your opinion, if you're a central banker, is this the right move?
2: Or do you think they uh, overdo it? No, so if if we're in a central banker body, right? So there's arms, legs, two eyes and nose, and maybe something in here, or maybe not. I, I say that just to get rich to laugh, of course. Like, they're just trying to do what what's to achieve what their policy mandate is. So for the Canadians, is they want to focus or target, try to achieve a certain level of inflation. And where they've been surprised so far, you know, they've gone from, you know, basically zero up to four and a half, you know, very, very quickly. And it hasn't been that much of an impact on inflation, I, I would argue, and I, I think Rich has talked about before as well. You know a, a lot of the slow, remember, inflation has not declined. I mean, we all know that. But you know, the the media will say, Oh, yeah, inflation is down. This one It's just growing slower. I mean, that's that's all it is. Um, but a lot of that has is simply been it's just year over year effects and you know, some mark like energy has come down quite a bit and stuff like that. Has it already been caused by central bank rates? And and that's where I think they're disappointed because they went from zero to four and a half, you know, very quickly. And in every central bank, you know, textbook that they're reading you know we we should have had a significant pullback in the economy by now like it, it should have happened so that's why they're sitting there you know you, you guys don't remember but there used to be a uh the head of the fed was this guy alan greenspan that was, that was a long time ago for, for <laughs> i remember him come on <laughs> and uh but you remember like you know you know he was turning into this demigod and you know years later they discovered he wasn't you know he was just the old man yelling at the clouds but at one point, though, you know, they were talking about how the economy, because back in the early 80s, the US economy was growing at four, four and or a half, five percent. And where was inflation? It was nowhere. Like it was it was unbelievable. And he used the word at the time. He said, this is a conundrum. And what the conundrum was really at that time, it was literally globalization. Like everything was being offshored or onshore, depending on your perspective. And you know, everything's just moving to the lowest cost. Uh, manufacturing jurisdiction, you know, whether it's China, Asia, South America, Mexico, it did it didn't matter. And, and that was more than enough, you know, to soak this stuff up. Central bankers today, you know, they have the exact opposite situation. Like globalization is now effectively dead. I think Rich disagrees with that sometimes, but you know, it for all intents and purposes, it, it's no longer like all the easy efficiencies, they've already been squeezed out. That that's happened. Right. That lemon has been juiced. Like that one, Rich. (laughs) Lemon's been juiced. I prefer turnips, but anyway. (laughs) Okay. And uh, but then of course, you know, they're dealing with, you know, if you shut down the global supply chains because of your, you know, your horrible policy response to the pandemic, and you do not reduce, you know, aggregate income at the same time, of course, inflation is gonna go through the roof you know of course supply chains can't get you know restarted again so so, so see like you know they're, they're they're trying to get things to where they want it to be and they're using yesterday's tools but it's just so, a different ball game that, they're in
0: that brings me to my next question which is like i've heard the argument from a lot of smart people and again i know there's going to be tons of people that disagree with this but it's interesting because it does make you think i've heard a lot of argument. Some from, uh, you know, one of them was from Professor Richard Werner, who invented quantitative easing, uh, the terminology that raising interest rates doesn't necessarily have a correlation with falling inflation, uh, and vice versa, like, you know, we we're in a, we we're in what the last 10 plus years of, of uh, zero interest rate policy. And just, you know, I mean, Japan's been doing it for 20 years can't generate inflation. So it's like, I don't know, I think, is there an argument to be made that central bankers believe that they can, that they can control everything with this lever? So can I take this one? Yeah, I mean, so I think
1: the short answer is yes. I think that there is absolutely an argument that this idea that only one market lever works. The longer answer is to say that, raising interest rates has no effect on aggregate demand or credit demand, I think is wrong. If tomorrow the the central bank of Canada put interest rates to 15% and said, screw you, we're holding them here. Trust me, that would affect people's decisions. And I think the the mistake I fall into, and I think loads of strategists fall into and market commentators is that it's just never just one thing there. It's a very complex, multivariate world that we live in. And I think that if you raise interest rates in a world where, for example, household debts have, are extremely, extremely high, and they're highly attuned to that short-term number, I think you have an ac- acute impact. However, right now, mortgage rates in the United States are five or six and a quarter, whatever percent. And because all of the households borrowed thirty-year fixed rates at three percent, there's almost no um, connective tissue between those two levers, right? The fact that the the Federal Reserve is raising short-term interest rates is not at all affecting the interest payments on a person who lives in Kentucky's mortgage payments, and so there's a there's there's no you know connective tissue there, and so I think it's it the the shitty answer is that I think it depends, but but you know the the short answer is I think yes you're right I think it's worth worth discussing.
0: You know it's interesting I don't know if you guys saw that piece, uh, but the, the credit spigots are certainly tightening. Uh, there was yeah. a that note circulating there on Twitter. Um, there was somebody uh, posted there that their CIBC unsecured line of credit uh, was going from prime plus two two point two five to prime plus five point two five which is Thanks. insane. And so, you know, if you're starting to see some of the banks doing that, um, yeah, I think we're going to see the, uh, the credit spigots tighten. So it'll be interesting to sort of see how the economy and these highly levered households uh, digest that, not having access to, uh, you know, lines of credit, essentially. So my biggest fear
2: right now is that we, I, I think we're getting closer and closer to the potential a high potential for a a massive credit crunch coming down the pipe here. You know, whether that's been, you know, brought forward faster with, you know, monetary policy from the last 48 hours or not uh, it's getting close guys. I think it's getting, it doesn't mean it has to happen, but the probability is certainly there. And my God, if it does happen, you know, it is one thing, you know, from an economic perspective and everything, but, You know, all all of these like traditional balance fund mandates are just going to get smoked because it's funny, right? Because, you know, you hold bonds in your portfolio to help reduce your risk to holding equities. However, equities are not a way to reduce your risk to the bond market. Cause you get a credit event, you know they're, they're both going to, you know, get it up up the nose, but but this is and, and again I mentioned earlier I think I asked the question when, when we had uh, Robert on earlier, you know when, when I'm I'm starting to see now everyone's going into private equity, sort of private equity, private credit, um and, you know and, and again the main reason for that is you're, there's no mark to market you can sort of wait it out and, and see what happens, but because institutional money is now buying private credit. It means they're not buying public credit or not as much of it. You know, they're not completely out of the market. But that just tells you something. You have to connect all this together. And it's a risk market we're in. And I think that, you know, risk has just been notched up a few levels, Rich. So, so I agree with you. I think
1: you're that's a really, really, like, really good cogent point. And I think you're right. That is a risk the problem I'm having is reconciling nominal GDP growth of like 7% in the US or 6%. Notice I didn't say real. I mean, I'm saying if you have sustained high nominal GDP growth, and this is that's a conversation for a different day. But I'm just saying if your top line number continues to take over at a relatively high pace, it makes a lot of the debt um issuance and the debt sort of um the payback issues you might have the refinancing issues you might have at that private credit level much much easier to swallow I know this because literally my client has literally just told me that on Tuesday Um, and so if you if you have that top line growth even though your returns won't be as good it prevents a severe dislocation in those credit markets but I think we should move on to other stuff because I think uh, Keith, you had some, or maybe you some pushback, perhaps. Pause, but I think there's loads of stuff. I'll frame it up so, for you,
0: Boomer. Sorry. Um, While well, we were chatting about uh, big deficit spending, and I, oh you know, God, I think we, Keith, I think that uh, I, Russell Napier, we got to have him on the show because I really feel his financial repression theory of like sticky inflation because governments just can't get their hands off printing money. Um, you know, we've got the, the, uh, England coming up with a UBI, uh, test run of universal basic income, uh, Rich, uh, what's the scoop over there, buddy, your feet on the ground.
1: Well, no, I think this one, this one's Keith, cause Keith's always telling us that, you know, people, other governments, they're all connected. Risk is synchronized. I agree to that to a certain degree, but I definitely think the political risk is synchronized and there's a trial balloon, Keith. And, and you wanted to, to let us know on a couple of trial balloons that we were sort of seeing here. Keith
2: Salving oh, no, over go. there. He's going
0: to retire and go no. on UBI.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we always spend a lot of time on it. But remember, you know, the Canadians aren't acting in isolation or on their own. But, uh, you know, I got a lot of things that caught my attention this week. But one, if there's a small group in England, they're going to start receiving, I think, it's 1,600 quid a month they're going to get. It's on a trial basis. And, you know, we'll see what happens with it. And so just imagine if, if everyone you know, receive this UBI, you know, universal basic income, they call it. So obviously people have more money. Okay. Steve, this one's few. What happens to inflation? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Those people got a lot more money to spend. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to go up again, but that was one thing. And, and again, of course, and that sort of ties in the whole central bank digital currency stuff. I think we're talking about in this. It yeah, becomes you know, easier to
0: distribute too, right?
2: Right. <clears throat> yeah. They're all, it's, it's just, it's just awkward where we're going when are it, we eating it, the bugs it, it really is yeah we eat the bugs but do you <laughs> want to talk about the uh the cato institute survey i know we yeah. were talking about it earlier do you want to go into it rich or do you want me to no no you, i want you to go for it because i think you have some really good points yeah and uh yeah so cato is but i love the name cato you know everyone who who was the it's uh it's a greek god isn't it or a roman god or something well, I thought it was like Batman's left hand man or no, something. No, oh, it's, it's was an ancient.
3: ancient it's who an ancient
2: was Cato? I know, He's a philosopher I know. or something like that.
3: <laughs> Actually,
2: I think it was the guy that lived in O.J. Simpson's pool house. His name was Cato, wasn't it? Kato yeah, he was Kalo. a Roman statesman. I was right. He's a philosopher slash Roman statesman.
1: Thank you. No, Internet. not the guy oh, that I was, lived I was in O.J. Simpson's pool hand, man. house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Green okay. Lantern. The Green Lantern. <laughs> Anyways, if we hit a new low yet, has
2: this been yeah, a new loony hour low show's you know, taking a turn for
0: the worst. Okay,
2: here we go. Here we go. So, anyway, uh this huge survey a of things, but they were surveying Americans on central bank digital currencies. And because you know, because we talked about it a few times, we brought it up again a couple weeks ago, but there's a whole bunch of questions here. But three jumped out at me that I wanted to share with with everyone. Uh, so 68% of Americans oppose central bank digital currencies if Government could monitor what people were buying. Right? Obvious. Makes you wonder. <laughs> makes you wonder why the other 32% are comfortable with that. But you know, anyway, again, like no secrets. They know they, you know, they, you know, they're gonna know what you're buying. 70% of Americans fear government will turn off their access to their money.
1: That's never oh, happened in Ottawa. <laughs> that will
2: never happen in Canada. My God. And by the way, anyone auto listening to this, it was horrible to do that. You you never do that, guys. Number three, the biggest concern with central bank digital currencies, you ready? The government will control your personal spending. And and that's some fry. I I heard one of the English politicians rating on this a while ago and what they could do. But again, it doesn't matter what is correct or incorrect with those three points that I pointed out. But it's being talked about. This is what people are believing. So I think central bank digital currencies, uh, it will not happen in in the U.S. It's going to be very difficult. If it does happen, the value of a physical U.S. dollar is going to go through the roof. Canadians will accept it with complete blind faith and trust, as will most of Europe and, and my God, New Zealand, like they'll do it every day of the week, I think they they would. But it, it's what's great, though, that it, it's being discussed. There are surveys out about it and there are some very strong feelings uh, about it. But what did what did you see, guys? Did you guys go through the survey? Yeah, I,
1: I, the only thing that was two things for me um, that I caught me in the survey was a lot of people didn't know what it was, which I was I shouldn't be surprised, but I was surprised. Um, I think a fair number of people said, you know, they didn't know what it was. Um, rather than having a view on it. And that's fair. It's a relatively new thing. So spread the word. word. Central Bank digital currencies are bad. <laughs> but the other thing that I thought was um, really interesting was... Oh, sorry. The other thing I think is really important is people will say, that's not true. They don't want to control your spending. Again, newsflash. Just go on the websites of the central banks, the ECB, the BOC, the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank, central bank. This is explicit in their language. That is exactly what they want to do. So I I was actually quite pleased to hear that a bunch of people were sort of caught on to that. um, And they were reading their own literature. Go ahead.
0: Sorry. Oh, I think we have to be like realistic and say, how many Americans know who Jerome Powell is? Like, I would. I would, Very few. I would or Tiff Mack or how many Canadians right. know who
1: Tiff Macklin is or whatever it is.
0: Exactly. I mean, obviously this is a, he's
3: you know, the guy
1: but... that
0: watches the loony or <laughs> <That's right. laughs> this is a podcast for geeks, right? Like, let's be honest, but, uh, and we love you all, but like, let's call it what it is. I think if you were to go out right now at the end of this episode, go text five of your buddies and ask them, you know, Hey, do you know who Tiff Macklin is? I can, like, I, I'm confident At best, one in five will probably answer that they know who he is. So the fact that you're now asking them, Hey, what's your opinion on a central bank digital currency? It's like, come on. Yeah, that's fair.
2: Okay, for the next, you know, weird and wonderful observation for the week. uh, Way over in Japan, guess what happened in Japan this week? Anyone? Okay, the so everyone, I think most people know. Uh, the Bank of Japan have been buying up ETFs all the time. So that's part of the quantitative easing program. Not only are they buying Japanese government bonds, but they're buying equities. There's some <laughs> of the, the largest e- shareholders. They yes. Are. Yes, they are. Absolutely. It's wild. It's yeah. wild.
0: Could you yeah, imagine Tiff Macklem just sitting at the uh, at the board there? Hey, I am your largest shareholder
2: <laughs> at, uh, at the Telescorp. I know, yeah, it's all ESG driven. And- oh, you beat me to it! I bit my tongue, Keith. DEI <laughs> and all that stuff. I was gonna anyway, say- <laughs> so with, with the Japanese, what's being discussed over there? So, there's the BOJ. Um, they have a, about 380 billion. Call it. Let's round it up. Okay, it's only billions. 400 billion dollars worth of equity ETFs right now. That's what it's worth. Their book value is about 260. So there's about 140000000000 billion they've made in you know, It's been a good they're, trade. On... Yeah, of course it has. Man, if, <laughs> if I could if I could buy stuff and free money all the time in the market and not worry about it, then I'm making money well, all I the time. I got some pre-sales for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so the great thing now is, so remember, that's the central bank. On the Minister of Finance side, they're trying to figure out a way how the, the, the Finmen to the government – can buy this book of ETFs from the BOJ at book value. (laughs) So a $400 billion portfolio, they wanna buy it for 265 billion, right? Or 260 billion. And then the plan then is to distribute it to the population. Jeez, I wonder why there's inflation, weird. (laughs) But again, like that's the next weird, wonderful thing that they're trying to, to figure it out. So it comes back to, you know, how do you know it's the end of the world? <laughs> you know, you're trying to do what shenanigans. A book yeah, book, yeah, you know, a market just... value for book value swap and give it to everyone just to spend the loony it's... hours to start
0: distributing equities in at uh, the next live <laughs> event. That's right.
2: Maybe we should do an IPO for Looney Hour Media Inc. Uh oh uh, we're gonna lot. now There's we're gonna get lot. in trouble with the regulators. So let's take that back. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair point yeah okay,
1: we're, we're, taking uh, it, we're,
0: we're going back we're taking it private um i got a few other things but nothing that that else i need to, to yeah share. i think, think we're to cut you off we're, we're running a little long here so i think yeah. uh it's a good place to end it we do have uh the the show is booked for july 27th in vancouver at the hollywood theater uh I think it fits about 300 people. So it should be uh, should be a great event, July 27th. Tickets will go on sale in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you guys will be the first to hear about it, obviously. So stay tuned for that. Mark your calendars. Uh, would love to see everybody in person. And uh, as always, appreciate the support. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Continue to spread the, the word of the loony hour here, the gospel. Uh, <laughs> leave a, a five-star review, share with a friend or family, and uh, we'll see you next week.